Thank you, Brother Eric. Good morning. We continue our study in the book of Philippians, the letter of Philippians this morning. We will be covering two verses today. Verses 27 and 28 from chapter 1. Being a child of God does not exempt you and I from experiencing difficulty. Life gets hard when our bodies don't work. Illness attacks us, finances disappear, relationships are strained, and injustices are frequent. Each one of us has some hard issue we're dealing with right now. What is it? Fix that in your mind. For as you open your Bibles to the end of the Philippians chapter 1, Paul's going to remind us how we can live for Christ when life gets hard. Because life will get hard for, all, for, for most of us, for all of us whether today, tomorrow, or has been, but it will, we will go through trials, tribulations, hardships in our lives as Christians. This letter is easy to understand. In verses 1 through 11, Paul introduces himself, reminds the Philippians just of how much he loves them and prays for them. Then in verse 12, he shares how his present circumstances are allowing him to share Christ and strengthen Christians. And his future, whether he lives or dies, is enabling him to enjoy more of Christ now and all of Christ later. Yet regardless of how much better heaven is, Paul has chosen to give up his wants of heaven in order to remain here and minister to the Philippians. With that backtrack, Paul now transitions in verse 27 from talking about his situation to their circumstances. Instead of talking about the privileges of being a Christian, Paul talks about obligations from narrative to imperative. The Christians in Philippi were being solely tested and they did not have their act together. Like many of us probably today, we don't all have our act together. There was friction within the church, all kinds of posturing, bickering, and pride was taking place. Added to the friction within the church, they were also experiencing some persecution from opponents outside the church. So here they are facing difficulty internally inside and difficulty externally outside the church. What do you do when life gets hard for you inside and outside the church? What do you do? What happens when cooperation turns to conflict internally and peace turns into persecution externally? The non-Christians usually just drops out. If you're a non-Christian, you're going to drop out, leaves for safer ground, or rejects the Lord outright. Many Christians blame others, lose their joy, become a spectator, or leave the church. But what are you supposed to do when life gets hard? What do you do when life gets hard? Paul gives God's answer in his own unique way. Paul summarizes the entire letter of the Philippians in verses 27 through 30 in one long run-on, unoutlinable sentence, which will take us two weeks to go through. He shares one main focus, tells us to live our focus, then gives us three reasons why our focus will be difficult. What do you do when living for Christ becomes hard. What do you do when living for Christ becomes hard? Paul now tells the Philippians a formula for victory when there's pressure within and persecution without. So the main point, if you leave today with this one thing, with this one sentence, with this one thought, the main focus is live as citizens of heaven in the colony called the church. Where is our citizenship? In heaven. Not here on earth, but we're the church here. We're the gathered ones 
who get together to worship God and to carry on his mission. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading Philippians 1, 27 through 28. God's word says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving by side, side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning asking you, Lord, to speak to us through your word, that we may be encouraged, that we may be rebuked, that we may be reminded of our citizenship in heaven, and that we may be on mission, Lord, to be about your gospel, Lord, preaching your gospel, living and, and believing your gospel, Lord, in, in our lives, Lord, and that we may continue, Lord, to be uh, just focused on you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Notice the first word of verse 27. The word only is emphatic, meaning it's emphasized in its original stating this above all else. Whatever may happen or at all costs, do this. What's so important, Paul? This is all of all of what Paul wants to say to the Philippians in summary form. Only what? Conduct yourselves. Conduct yourselves. This is the Greek word polytomai. It's the root from politel. It is, where, it is where we get our English word for politic or political. And here, conduct yourselves means to live as a citizen. Now, why would Paul use this term? term? Several reasons. In the Greek city-states which preceded Rome, to live as a worthy citizen was a matter of great pride. They took pride in being part of Rome, of being citizens of Rome. People didn't live for themselves or take pride in their own achievements but they took pride in serving their city. All their talents, abilities, and efforts were used for the good of the community. This pride carried on to Roman times when being a Roman citizen carried great privileges. Even the Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen and used that privilege in Philippi. Don't forget, Philippi was a Roman providence. They were citizens of Rome and were proud of the fact. They were actually... There, there was actually this kind of pride in being a U.S. citizen. If you're a, a U.S. citizen, along with appreciating the strengths of every culture and every country, I, I'm, I'm sure if you're a citizen, you're going to have a sense of pride of being a citizen of the USA, right? Because we, we live in a great country where we have freedom to be expressing our beliefs and gather together here on a Sunday morning to worship our God. So I'm thankful for my country, regardless of its many faults, and its serious decline, because there's many issues, right, with the government. Even though the city of Philippi was 800 miles away from the city of Rome, the Philippians lived as if they were in Rome itself. Taking great pride in their Roman citizenship, they sought to live worthy of Rome. This helps us understand what Paul is saying here in verse 27. When he commands the Philippians to live as citizens, to conduct themselves worthy of the gospel of Christ. Just like the city of Philippi seeks to be a little colony of Rome while separated from Rome, Paul says to you and to me, the church and the church in Philippi, seek to be a good colony of heaven while separated from heaven. Seek to be a good colony of heaven while separated from heaven. 
Later, Paul will be even more pointed. And let's go to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. It says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Brother, sister, our citizenship is in heaven. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you've been born again, if God has changed you and you're a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. Paul knew how proud the Philippians were of their earthly citizenship. He knew they allowed that earthly citizenship to affect the laws of their city, their social customs, and the daily conduct of their lives. How much more should they be proud of their citizenship in heaven? This was the greater citizenship. They were to live by its laws and cherish its customs. Moreover, they were to extend the influence of heaven into a pagan and sometimes hostile environment. Christian, brother, sister, you should be thrilled to be from heaven. Are you thrilled? Are you excited about your citizenship being in heaven? You're a citizen of heaven, having a heavenly origin, a heavenly destiny. That is where our where we're headed to. That is our home. This is all temporary. We're sojourners. We are pilgrims. We're traveling through earth, but we do not, we will not be here forever. We will be in heaven. God will make a new heaven and a new earth. And with that comes responsibilities of living a heavenly life on this earth in the midst of ungodly people and pagan surroundings, telling sinners of a savior in heaven who cares to save them from their sins if they surrender to him, Paul says, start cheering the loudest Christians as a church. Let everyone know where you're from. That is what Paul is telling us right here. He's saying, get excited, get, get joyful that you're from heaven, that you're, that's where your destiny is, that's where your home is. The verb conduct yourself, conduct yourself. To live as citizen is, to, is a strong as Paul uses an imperative, he commands them, live uniquely as citizens of heaven. And it's in the middle voice where the subject acts upon themselves to live in this manner, telling us this, more than merely obeying the command as a matter of obligation to God, we're to obey this command because of the privileged position. Because you're, you're privileged to, that's where your home is, that's, you're a citizen of there. So you should be acting that way. We occupy and we're literally to cha charge ourselves to obey it. The middle voice means that we're to put uh, the pressure on ourselves to live uniquely like a citizen of heaven, like a foreign colony of heaven in the midst of a pagan world. Paul expands on that thought this way in verse 27. In a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Not for yourself. Not for your family. Not for your church, but for Christ and his message, the gospel. The Philippians were used to standing up for their Roman citizenship. Now Paul says, stand up, stand out for your heavenly citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The Greek word worthy comes from the root word weight. Literally, our behavior is to have some weight as the gospel we profess to believe. If our lives don't live according to the message we say we believe, then it will have no weight. 
Paul says, if we say we follow Christ and proclaim his message as the only way to be delivered from sin, yet the world sees us cheat at work, ignore our spouses, berate our children, yell at the coach or tell lies, then we are lightweights. Our witness has no weight. Our proclamation has no punch. Are we living it out? Are we, are people, when people see you and I, do they say, man, this person is a citizen of heaven. There's a son, a daughter of God. He's different. It's not the same as everyone else. Do they see that in our lives? Are we proud to, ex- to, to tell people that we're citizens of heaven? Even that, as the Philippians were suffering, Paul may, uh, says, Make certain you live, not with selfish ambition, grumbling or disputing, but worthy of the gospel, the good news of salvation, telling friends they can be delivered from sin and made like Christ. Share the gospel, the powerful God-made message of a sovereign action of grace where through repentance and sin and faith in the fact Christ died for our sin, was buried and raised on the third day, will deliver people from sin and transform them to live like Christ. But if we don't live like Christ, then we don't live worthy of the gospel. We're not in keeping with our heavenly citizenship. And we all fail at that. Don't, don't feel bad. We all fell short of being citizens of heaven. We mess up every day. We don't live out in our lives as we should be living out through scripture, through God's living, walking in the spirit. The gospel is about Christ. And if we are to live worthy of his message, then we must live Christ. He must be our delight and our treasure. Christ is to be the center of all that we say and do. For more For the more he does live through us, the more we live as a citizen of heaven and live worthy of his gospel. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And how do we delight in Christ? How do we delight in Christ? We seek to be satisfied in him alone. Start each day with Jesus loves me. Enjoy him in worship. Seek him for wisdom. Trust him when alone. Let him be your secret treasure in every event of your day. For when Christ is your delight, you'll walk worthy of him. And don't miss this. If we're we're to live worthy of the gospel, then we must share it. We must proclaim the gospel with words to our family, our friends, our co-workers, the people around us. As a citizen of heaven, we should be telling them that they can also become citizens of heaven. The gospel is good news. It's a message meant to be shared, not hidden or hogged. Parenting is not an end end in itself. It's for Christ to proclaim the gospel, to win your children with God's word lived out in your life. Employment is not merely to make an income. It's for Christ and for his message to be weighty enough to make a difference in what you say and do. Education is not merely for a degree, it's for Christ and for his message to be heard in your words and backed up, not lightweight, but heavily by your life. So act upon yourself to live as a citizen of heaven, making sure your life backs up the message of Christ in all that you do. And Paul adds, nothing should be kept from us from from this. Look what Paul says in the middle of verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. Standing firm. Like a parent telling his children he is going away, Paul instructed the Philippians to behave themselves regardless of whether he is here, 
they're dead or alive. Your goal as a parent is to train your children to live for Christ, whether you're with them or not. Paul says the same thing for, to the Philippians, but how? How do we live worthy of the gospel as citizens of heaven, no matter what? How do we do that? How to live worthy, cling together as a church. Look at the end of verse 27 and the beginning of verse 28. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents. In this section, Paul commands the Philippians with one main verb, standing firm. What does it mean to stand firm? Then he explains what standing firm means with three participles. Striving together, not being frightened, and by the opposition. Standing firm in the Greek is used to describe a soldier who does not bulge one inch from his critical pulse while under attack. The picture here is of a line of soldiers. Just think of a line of soldiers on little round top during the Civil War Battle of Gettysburg who refused to allow their line to break or to surrender their position even after being attacked again and again. They're standing firm side by side, side by side. They're not moving back. Paul's point is we stick together and when under the gun, the Philippian church and Acts, all generally biblical churches are to be uncompromising in our position. As the church, we're to be uncompromising in our position, proclaiming the gospel, living the gospel and display, displaying the person of Christ even when attacked. We're going to be attacked. The church is going to be attacked by the things we say because the world will hate it. The world does not agree with the word of God and they will slander and say, mean, ugly things about us as Christians. We're to be tenacious, firm, resolute, and steadfast. And we are to be that way together collectively as the church of Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Or later in Philippians 4, 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Unite together, hold your ground, bond with your brothers, stick with your sisters. What do you mean, Paul? Look at the two qualifiers to our standing fast in verse 27. We're to be in one spirit, with one mind, literally one soul, because of how both these terms are used in the following verses. The context would dictate by using the word spirit. Paul is calling the church to walk in the Holy Spirit. And by using mind and soul, Paul is calling the church together to become one person, one body under the truth of the word of God, to have one mind. Sticking together requires each of us to be completely relying upon the spirit of God, not by living on our own strength. How many times do we try to do things on our own strength when God's calling us to Trust in his spirit. But by God's strength in everything, we should be doing everything through God's strength and seeking to live under the word of God, trying to come to one mind as to what God, is, what God says in everything. If we're going to live as citizens of heaven, we can't do it alone. We're to cling together, to rely upon or rely upon the Spirit together, come one mind by the Word together, functioning as one body with one mind, with one mind being Christ's mind, expressed in His Word. 
We won't live like a heavenly colony unless we stick together by the Spirit and by the Word of God. Any charcoal barbecue, anyone who does barbecue here, um, you know, if you're a man, true men barbecue because all men love to play with fire, right? Or we like to eat the meat. We, like to, we, like, we all like eating. I love eating. So it's amazing just how hot coals can get when burning together. But all barbecuers know the faith of that one lone coal. The separated coal is the one that grows cold. Its flames will go out. That's why we're encouraging you and we tell you as pastors, as elders, to come to church to gather, to be a part of the local church, to not forsake the gathering of the saints because you will go cold if you're out there by yourself at home or wherever you may be. It's the same with any Christian here. To be hot, we need to stick together in fellowship and ministry, but we will grow cold as we remain separate. Just attending Acts is not sticking together. You may come here but does that not mean you're sticking together? Then what is it? Paul gives us three requirements for sticking together. First, we must work together as a team. The end of verse 27, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is a team effort. This is what you'll see while, you're, while you watch the Super Bowl today. So you're going to watch it today. They, they're going to work two teams going head to head, and only one's going to win the, the prize, the Super Bowl. In fact, the word Paul uses for strive is sunate leo. You can hear the Greek word athleo in there, from which we get our English word athlete. Sun is together with. So it's athletes working together. It's Christians struggling together side by side or gladiators fighting together against a common foe. You might be like, wait, I'm not an athlete. You're an athlete for Christ in the church. We need to stop thinking about the sins that are ruining our neighborhood and start thinking about how at last sin has met its match in Jesus Christ. We need to move from fatalism to faith, from deadness of corruption to delight of Christ. In order to stand against, uh, together as citizens of heaven, we must manifest an aggressive faith. We stand together under a common goal. We can't all do our own thing and stand together in unity. We can't do what we want and be a colony of heavenly citizens together. For the church to work, you have to give up some of your personal rights, your privileges, your time, your energy, your money, and your heart focus. There's got to be sacrifice in our, in, in our lives to be able to be united and be working together collectively. Whether it's, again, your time, your energy, your money, your heart focus, your rights. What Paul said, what does Paul say? We must work together as a team, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And Paul clarifies his struggle as he adds for the faith of the gospel. That's the focus, the faith of the gospel. We've all seen quarrelsome athletes functioning like well-oiled machine when the championship is in, on the line. You're going to see that today if you watch the game. All is forgotten when the team focuses on that one common objective to win the championship. They all come together and they do some incredible things. The church common objective is to spread the gospel, to be such spirit-filled community, obedient to the word of God with so much love and so much truth holding us together in humility. People can't help but be attracted to Christ because of how all of us are working to put Christ on display with our speech, our actions, and our attitudes. 
That's what we're called to be and to do. Again, we each can show off Christ individually, but as a, as all of us are filled with the Spirit and seeking to follow God's Word, as each of us manifests Christ through our giftedness of ministry in ministry, then the world will see more of Christ through us corporately than they ever could individually. Because do not we make more in numbers than by ourselves? We must coordinate as a team to proclaim the gospel. Striving for the faith of the gospel is not talking about strengthening our own faith, but putting forth all sorts of efforts to spread the faith of the gospel. The reason is this, in verse 28, Paul speaks of the need to be fearless before your opponents. In other words, the situation he has in mind is something public, an effort for the gospel that meets with opposition. In, in chapter 2, verse 15, he refers to the Philippians shining as light in the world. Let's read chapter 2, verse 15. that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're to shine in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Paul's saying in order to live lives worthy of the gospel, there must be a unified, fearless striving for the faith of the gospel in an effort, in an effort, some way the gospel spread in the world of unbelief. We live in a world that's full of unbelief. But verse 27 says, With one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. The word striving translated labor and compete elsewhere in the New Testament. It has the idea of effort, discipline, endurance of athletic endeavor. I take this to mean one essential way to walk worthy of the gospel is to fix your eyes on the goal of spreading the faith of the gospel. Then apply the effort, discipline, and endurance of an athlete to reach that goal. You might be saying, man, it's hard for me to share the gospel with people, but you're to strive to do that. You're to equip yourself. You're to be trained. You're to be, be able to, you should be able to ex express what Christ has done for you on the cross to anybody who you come in path with, your family, your friends, anybody who's there, you should be able to tell them what God has done for you in your life. We're to share Christ together with the same zeal, discipline, and effort as a Super Bowl team striving to win. When Paul says this kind of life is worthy of the gospel, he means any other kind of life would slight the gospel. Not striving to spread the faith of the gospel is to treat the gospel as cheap. If the gospel is the message that exalts Christ, then we must be embraced in order to be saved it is the most precious thing anyone can know. The gospel is the most precious thing anyone can know. Why? Because the message of the gospel exalts Christ. And it must be embraced in order to be saved. To live worthily of the gospel, we simply must become, as it were, athletes. Men, athletes. Women, athletes. 80-year-old athletes, I don't know anyone to hear 80-year-old, but 80-year-old athletes are what? You're, maybe you're 8 years old, an 8-year-old athlete. None of us will be measured in our own athletic prowess against the, de the Decalon powers of the Apostle Paul. We will be measured against what we could have done, not by what someone else could have done. And all of us can do something if we love the author of the gospel. You may say, man, I'm not really athletic, but you can do something. 
for God, for the gospel to be proclaimed. We all can do something, whether you're old, you're young, you're fit, you're unfit, doesn't matter. So the question remains, are we delighting in Christ so much that we want others to know him? Are we delighting in Christ so much that we want others to know him? Are we more interested in who wins the Super Bowl? Does this minor sporting event have more of your heart and banner waving than the gospel of Christ? Because people get so excited. I mean, I get excited about football, right? I'm a fat Rams fan and my team's not playing, but we all have a thing that we are passionate about and we watch and we, we get excited for. Maybe you're not a sports person. Maybe you like movies or whatnot, you know, and, uh, or food or something. You know, you get excited about this or that. But that should not excite us more than the gospel of Christ. The more we treasure who Christ is, the more all of us together can, and each of us individually will strive to share him like an athlete wanting to win the Super Bowl, the prize, the goal. There's real power when we all work together to delight and display Christ. When each of us functions as a member of Christ's body together, we will see him more clearly. The more we spiritually hold hands, striving together, the lighter the tighter, the more effective net we will form to catch the lost fish of this world. But what about when the lost fish have big teeth? What about when the big fish have big teeth? I mean, there are some great white shark lost people out there, right? We must not panic. Look at verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents. In no way alarmed by your opponents. Put on your no fear t-shirts. No fear. Athletic and no fear. Those are the t-shirts you're going to get. The word alarm is used to describe the terror of, frightened, of a frightened horse. Alarm is to be startled or shocked. Paul says in Philippians, don't panic when the government starts putting you in jail because you share Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. Don't panic when they threaten to kill you because you won't worship the emperor anymore. Don't panic when there's friction inside and pressure outside the church. Don't panic. As you share Christ, don't panic. God is in charge. He's sovereign over salvation and over your suffering. We believe that. We believe that God is sovereign over your salvation and your suffering. Next week, we'll talk more about suffering because they were suffering. The church of Philippi were suffering. They were being persecuted. Don't panic. But I do panic, Lord. Honestly, the bigger and better attack, the attack is, the more courage and calmness I have. It's the small ones that get me all the time. I, can't, I can take on a lion, but I wimp out over the rat. Little one running around, right? Or the spider or the insect or whatnot, you know? The Philippians are tempted to say to Paul, you don't understand the opposition we're facing here. But Paul says, I know all about it. Paul, does Paul not know all about the opposition? He does. He's in prison. He's in jail. Third, we must expect opposition. Don't get... Don't get um, Wow, we're getting opposition. Surprise as, as if opposition was something that surprises you. Verse 28, by your opponents, this is the third part of explaining standing firm. Standing firm, striving together, meaning working as a team. Standing firm, not being frightened, meaning don't panic. And now standing firm against opponents means always expect opposition. Always, Paul says, work together as a team. Don't panic over the opposition continually coming at you. You will have opposition coming at you. Paul is painting an awesome picture. You get it? The idea of, is of another team made up of the ad adversaries who are entrenched in their opposition against you, the church members versus the Satan seculars, or the Savior lovers versus the Jewish legalists. The zealous Roman pagans of Philippi worship Caesar as Lord, 
and would oppose anyone who worshipped Jesus as Lord. They were enemies. And if there were more Jews in Philippi 10 years after Paul's visit, they'd not like a salvation by grace alone through faith alone, without the law or Jewish traditions. But regardless of who exactly the opposition is, one thing is certain, the heat is on and it's not letting up. But what a comforting joy it is to have been for all the Philippians to hear Paul, not only because Paul is their father and a faith, an apostle and a great Bible teacher, but Paul is also a man who's experienced opposition in the past and is currently experiencing opposition now. He actually writes his letter under prison, being in jail 24, 24 hours a day, awaiting his trial by faith, which may result in his death. So Paul is not just talking the talk, he's walking the walk. He's an example to the church, to the Christians in Philippi of what it means to stand firm. Paul tells them, if you're going to live as citizens of heaven in the colony called the church, then you're going to have to cling together as a church by working together as a team to share the gospel while not panicking, but actually expecting opposition. But why? Why must we experience opposition and suffering? Have you ever asked that question? Why is it that we experience opposition and suffering? For the answer to, to that verse 28 to 30, we must, you must come next week. We will talk about it next week. But as you reflect on this passage, consider these statements. If your life is too easy, it could be you're not in the right battle. Always expect opposition. Anything which brings God glory in its power of the Spirit by the Word of God will be opposed by the enemy team. So if your life is too easy and examine yourself, only you know your life, you, could not be, you might not be in the right battle. Anyone serving in ministry, all who seek to share Christ, anything you seek to do to honor Christ will be opposed. This planet is hostile to Christ and all who honor him will be resisted. So if life is too easy, it could be that you're not in the battle. Do not panic when you're opposed as you seek to serve Christ. Always expect opposition. Every time I go out there, and Brother Jardo will know, if we're out there preaching, sharing the gospel, being evangelists, there's people, hecklers, people are going to come and, 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 and oppose the preaching of the gospel. It just, it's part of how it is. Satan and his minions will be sent out to go against us, to go against his word and the gospel going forth. Two, if you're worn out in your labors for Christ, it could be you're trying to do your service alone or you're trying to serve your, on your own strength. We're not called to do this alone, you guys. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. There's no such thing. There are no Lara Crofts nor Rambos. None of those. There's no Rambos in the church. True Christianity is a team. Our team battles a team. Striving together is a team effort. Standing firm, one spirit, one mind is a team effort. You're to be interconnected to a church, and within that church be interconnected to a ministry or a group. They should know what you struggle with so that they can pray. They should know what you're, when you're not here on Sunday so they can support, help, confront, love, and encourage you. Biblically, even the missionary who is being sent out, but never alone. There is no such thing as a solo saint. There's no such thing as a solo saint. You're the organ of a body which, can, which can't survive without the body. Can your heart just survive without the body? Can your, 
liver survive without the body. It's all together. It all is inside. You're the sheep which is a part of the flock. You'll be eaten by a wolf. You're the brick that's part of the building or it's useless on its own. You're the participant on the team, not the spectator watching it all from the stands. If you're worn out, it's because you're trying to serve Christ alone. It's time to start serving together as a part of the family. And maybe you have forgotten how dependent you are upon the Spirit of God. Remember, you can't live for Christ, only the Spirit through you can live the Christian life. Don't do this on your own, whether you're reading the Bible, praying, witnessing, evangelizing, serving with the kids, cleaning, whatever it is you're doing for Christ, let it be done through His power, not through your own strength, through the Spirit that indwells you as a believer. Are you filled with the Spirit moment by moment, knowing you can't please Christ unless He lives through you? Are you dependent upon the Spirit and obedient to the Word? Trying to live for Christ in your own strength is not only impossible, but exhausting. With each event, each person dependent on the Spirit, depend on the Spirit as you obey the Word of God. Third, if you want to live worthy of Christ, you'll need to fix your heart on heaven. Again, heaven is our goal. That's where we're headed to. It says to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of Christ is to live on earth as a citizen of heaven. Part of our problem in, out here in the suburbia of, of, of uh, where we live is that we have it so good. We don't long for a better place. Our treasure is here. So our hearts are here. We get so caught up on, this, on the things that we have here on earth. But Paul tells us to change that in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Is our, mind, is our mind on the things above, or is our mind caught up on the things here on earth? The Greek is funny. Paul gives the Colossians a command to think up, not on earth. I have never met a person who is so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. You hear sometimes the opposite, right? You're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. No. We're so heavenly minded that we are earthly good. Want to live worthy of Christ? Start thinking up. Imagine what heaven will be like. Imagine what living with Christ face to face will be like. Fill your thoughts with what it will be like to be around in heaven when you are perfect. Wouldn't, isn't that going to be an awesome time? Work at thinking up in order to live worthy of Christ. Last, if you're desired to live as a citizen of heaven, you need to submit to Christ. You have to want Christ more than your own house and car. You have to want Christ more than your own spouse and kids. You have to want Christ more than your own life. To be a citizen of heaven, it is a free gift, but there, the heart cost is your own life in exchange for Christ. You submit to Christ as the one who died for your sins, and you submit to him as the Lord you now follow. There is only one king in heaven, and it's not you, and it's not me. To be Christ's subject, you submit to Christ alone. Do you truly belong to his kingdom? That is the question that I ask. And if you don't, today, repent, put your faith and trust in Christ as your Lord, as your Savior and you will have eternal life, and you will be adopted as a son or daughter into the family of God. So let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we give you thanks because we are your sons and your daughters, and we are citizens of heaven, Lord. Lord, let us think of the things above. Let us, Lord, um, act, Lord, as, as your ambassadors here on earth, Lord, as your children, Lord, giving uh, just a good representation of you, Lord, that we would strive together as a church, Lord, together, united, Lord, for the proclamation of your gospel to the city and to the surroundings, Lord. May we, Lord, um, be all about you, Lord, glorifying you, Lord, and putting you in the center of all that we do, Lord, being obedient to your word and striving, Lord, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Lord. So help us, Lord, to be obedient to you, Lord, and that we may glorify you in, every day, in our everyday lives, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.